0: Nine, eight, eight, seven, six, six five, four, three, two, one. Uh, I think that is fair As to say. I say hands to kiss and babies to shake. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know,
1: I think my record speaks for itself. It's a really good question. Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking podcast. I'm your host Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio in St. Louis is Joe Manis and the greatest Poplar Bluffian in the world. I'm not sure anybody would
0: agree (laughs) with that characterization, but
1: Todd Richardson. The Speaker of the Missouri House, a Republican from the aforementioned Poplar Bluff.
0: Welcome to St. Louis and welcome to our show. It's a pleasure to be here and uh, to actually get the chance to be in studio with you today. As,
1: As our listeners may remember, we had then House Majority Leader Richardson on our show, I think about Three, four months ago? Sounds about right. It was a very popular show. I remember coming up to uh, then Majority Leader Richardson in the Capitol and telling him that it had broken all hits records and flattering him to no end, which I think was a good thing because he's now Speaker of the House. Yeah, <laughs> maybe we can draw a direct line of correlation between the two, Jason. So, um, you know, anybody who's listened to our show over the last month or so know that we've been talking about your transition into the speakership quite a bit. It's been kind of the talk of Missouri politics because it was unexpected. It was shocking. And in many ways, it was a a transition that you probably weren't expecting or wanting. So, um, Joe, can you kind of give us a little bit more background before we start asking questions? Well,
2: it's also, though, the whole episode where House Speaker John Deal— uh, ended up stepping down because of a controversy over some um, sexually charged texts that he was exchanging with a 19-year-old intern, um, also put the spotlight on what some see as um, a party atmosphere in Jefferson City, to put it politely. And I've had some reporters say that actually it's a little different than some of the other capitals. So, But in any event, he ended up leaving right, right at the end of session with just a uh... If officially just a few hours left technically um, he made it clear maybe thirty six hours before and um, richardson was uh... chosen during a late night meeting during that final week and this was part of the chaos during that last week which ended up with a lot of bills dying this and some unrelated stuff that was going on in the Senate, but so welcome to the show. And I'm interested in your take on all this and how things have sort of fallen out since then, or the last six weeks, I guess.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, where, where to begin? I mean, it's been a uh, it's been a very Unique and challenging time, obviously for uh, for the House and for our Republican caucus, and um, you know we went through a very difficult period over that last uh, la- last week of session. And um, but I'm very proud of the way we handled it. I'm very proud of the way that that John handled himself uh, during that episode, and I think he did the right thing in stepping aside. And I'm very um, proud, not just because they selected me, but very proud for the way that the caucus handled that. Because I, I I sensed that the caucus was very committed to m- moving forward and getting back to work, and um, you know one of the things you know the speaker traditionally gets to do when being sworn in is to you know give give the big opening day speech filled with all of the uh, flowery rhetoric and uh, talking points that we all want to hit, and you know for me it was important to, to strike a different tone because this was a different kind of of situation, and I think. You know, in the House, I'm proud of the fact that we went back to work. And we went back to work, you know, immediately after getting through that and still got a lot of substantive work done during the last week of session. Did you have any idea
1: that... This entire situation with the intern was coming in that week. I mean, we had R- Representative Corneo on, and he said that there had been rumors about this. But did you know anything about this going
0: on? Not, not, not beyond the rumors. I mean, every there are rumors that you know happen in that building every I single know, day know. of the week, and you know, in in this case, it was a situation where you know I asked about them and was told they were not true, and um, you know, but we continue to hear those rumors bubble up. But I th- nobody expected um, this to happen the way it did. Well, I remember
1: you know state out deals door, I think it was hashtag Deal Watch, and I remember you walking in, not really saying anything. You obviously were probably that of was a Wednesday lot of different, yeah. different minds. What were you kind of feeling during the hours after the Kansas City Star broke and Leading up to your election as speaker,
0: well, I think first and foremost it was concern about the House and it was concern about our caucus and and the concern about my friend John. John and I had a a, a uniquely good relationship and we a professional working relationship that was you know led us both to be able to do um, you know significant things in our time in the House. Um, but my first concern was for the caucus and to try to give uh, John good advice and that advice was to keep the you know, his family first in, in his mind in terms of making decisions moving forward, and second um, was my thoughts on how his decisions would impact the caucus.
2: Now, um, since then, looking forward, how is your selection, what's been going on the last six weeks? I've been hearing different speculations as far as how this may or may not affect the veto session, the fact that it's you going to be overseeing the House and not deal during the veto session. But I'm mean, just interested in sort of the fallout of the last six weeks on issues and things that you're having to deal with now.
0: Well, I mean, certainly we're going through a transition period, and a lot of it's been more on the administrative side than it has been on on the the policy side at this point. We obviously are looking forward to both our summer caucus meeting here in a month in St. Louis and and beyond that uh, veto session. But I ultimately think that, you know, how we deal with the substantive issues that come up in veto session, um, our caucus is going to look and evaluate those issues the same they, as they would have were john still in office and and still the speaker and so um i, I, I think the caucus will move forward just fine in this now
2: sense. is the caucus in, affected at all by some of the stories that have come out uh by various news outlets since then that basically have focused on the alleged um party atmosphere out of control atmosphere i mean i'm not saying it's true or not but that's how some of the stories have made it looked and some highlighting uh, sexual harassment of women whether they be interns or legislators I'm just interested in how that may be affecting um, the business right now
0: well I think there's rightly uh, a lot of concern not only about the image that uh, that is coming from the general Assembly right now but uh, but also the substance of, of what's happening there and I think there's a, a a sense from a number of our members and keep in mind the the vast vast, overwhelming majority of people who serve in Jeff City are there for the right reasons um, and they're making good decisions both in their professional life and their personal life. Um, And so I think one of the things that concerns that is of concern to our caucus is, you know, this notion that everybody's getting painted with sort of the same brush here. And I've heard that a lot from from our members. But I've also heard from our members who say, hey, look, we take on uh, the responsibility of being in the in the public eye, um, and we need can and need to be better. And so we're working very hard to try to, to create a better atmosphere and an environment um, than has existed in the past.
1: What Joe was alluding to was there was a Kansas City Star article last week where a number of people on the record named talked about how they had been sexually harassed by members of both parties or by lobbyists or staffers. And my question that I asked on Twitter, because I know that there was like an ask, uh, there might be a push to try to add rules or regulations. But from your view, do you think that it's just that some bad people are being elected to the legislature? Or do you think that there's something corrosive about the culture that's causing potentially good or neutral people to make bad decisions like that?
0: I think it's a very difficult Question to answer, and I think you could ask the same question in any other business or environment that experiences the same these same kinds of problems. Um, but I think you know clearly the things uh, that were mentioned in that article are are very serious charges and unacceptable um, kinds of activities. And so we have a responsibility as stewards of the institution right now to try to make it better. Um, and whether that's um, a function of the people that are there or the environment. Um, I, I don't know and and really frankly to me it's immaterial. Um, my my job as the speaker is to try to do what's within my control and and I think the commitment um, for my caucus is to do what's in their control to try to make the environment better than it is today. Now,
1: and, one, one thing that I think you did from, from a practical pers- perspective is you appointed a committee to look at the internship policy. What do you think will come of that over the next few weeks and months?
0: Well, I'm very interested to see what their recommendations are and what we put together, a what, what is essentially a task force of legislators uh, to work not only uh, amongst themselves, but also to work with Um, our house staff, our human resources department, and and the universities that participate in the intern program to do a kind of evaluation of where our program is, to look at what some other states do and and look for some areas uh, to improve it. So um, I've asked them to take the, to, to move with, with speed, but to take the time they need to do that that kind of review and come back to us with some recommendations. I'm very optimistic that it's going to produce some really good positive results, not just for sort of the cleaning up side of things, but also to make the intern program a little better and more structured than it's been in the past. Well,
1: we could, I guess, retrospect about the last week of session forever because it was so wacky, but we do want to look a little bit forward here into the the media issues of the day. Significantly forward. So the first thing we want to talk about is so-called right-to-work legislation. We always say so-called right-to-work legislation because some people on the other side don't like that term. They like to call it right-to-work for Uh, less.
0: I would leave the so-called
1: off, but that
0: may have more to do with my perspective on the issue.
1: I understand that. And right-to-work is shorthand – for legislation that passed the legislature but was vetoed by the governor.
2: What Right to Work would do in a simplified term is that it would bar uh, employers and unions from requiring all the workers to pay dues if a majority have voted to organize.
1: So you voted for Right to Work. You are a supporter of Right to Work. On our last show, you talked about Right to Work, I think, at length. So the question that I think a lot of people are wondering now, and I'm, I'm guessing you're probably not going to reveal on our show, is kind of what its fate will be. In veto session, because as as many people know, it didn't get 109 votes. I think it got significantly less than that. What's kind of the lay of the land on that issue?
0: Well, I think if I knew what the outcome of that issue was going to be, I probably would reveal it to you. But it's um, it's an issue, obviously, that uh, we need 109 votes to to override the governor's veto, and um, we had 92 members that supported it. uh, 92 returning members or right. remaining members that supported it. Um, and so we're, you know, looking for an additional 17 uh, votes to complete the override. I think this is an important policy discussion for the state to have. I think if you look at what's happening across the country, um, particularly in states that um you know, resemble Missouri in a lot of respects, Midwestern states like Indiana, Michigan, Wisconsin, um, even Illinois, and Governor are having conversations about what their labor policy looks like. Um, this is a conversation that Missouri needs to have about what puts us in the best position to succeed economically. Um so I, I don't have a crystal ball to know whether uh, we will have 109 votes uh, come the middle of September, uh, but it's a it's a conversation we're going to be having with the caucus and and our members going forward.
2: Now, will you bring bring it up regardless of whether or not you think you have the nine votes, or are you going to do be be counting heads? And if you're not close, you're not going to deal with it.
0: I, I think that's a decision we'll make. You know, sometime uh, after. You know, meeting at summer caucus. We haven't made a decision one way or the other on that yet. Um, but it's it's my intention to to work to try to find the votes and to allow um, our the bill sponsors uh, and the proponents um, in the house to try to find the have the opportunity to find those votes.
2: Now, are there any other major vetoes that you expect that the general assembly is going to be dealing with at at, at, at this point? I mean, the governor's still got a few actions to take. But of course, he vetoed the transfer bill.
0: Yeah, I'm very disappointing to see the governor veto the transfer bill. And, um, you know, I, unfortunately, it's probably a bill where it, it's a, it's as steep, if not a steeper hill to climb than, than right to work. But if you take a look at the transfer issue, um, it, here's an issue of critical importance to the St. Louis region, uh, of critical importance to our state's education system. The legislature very clearly listened to the governor's veto message from last year. Um, his principal objection, being the inclusion of a private option. We sent him a transfer bill that worked on in a very bipartisan fashion, um, and we're faced with yet another veto. So uh, that was very disappointing. Your question, though, was was what other you know major uh, items that are out there? Um, we still have some unemployment issues that are out there. Okay. Uh, the minimum wage issue, which I know has gotten a lot of attention.
1: Yeah, that was going to be my next question, because yeah. I'm sure you've been following the machinations in KC and St. Louis and it's a, it's a strange situation because I kind of have – I'm not an attorney. I know that you are. But my sense is it may be easier to throw out a local minimum wage increase if the 722, which is the one that will probably get vetoed and may get overridden, is actually implemented because of that August 28th safe haven that they say exists because right now without that law there's a whole bunch of other things i think could strike it down so is it possible if that gets vetoed maybe republicans would just purposely let it stand
0: well i i think i'm not sure i agree with that legal interpretation that it makes it more uh, more more likely okay. to be implemented and and you know but that's one of the things that that we're going to evaluate in the decision override but i think when you when you look at the broader policy issue that's at play here and look you've seen this right here just contained within the region you've seen a lot of people in st louis county very concerned about the idea of the city having a different wage than the county, which was the idea behind the the legislation in the first place, which is that, you know, we, we don't live in, a, in isolated communities. We live in communities that are part of broader regional economies. And when you have that, I think there's a need to have a consistency of approach in terms of what the minimum an issue like minimum wage is going to be
1: there's been a lot of republican legislators who I think have been pretty upset by what St. Louis and Kansas City have done uh, Senator Kurt Schaefer has even said that you know lawmakers may take a look at getting rid of the earnings tax in St. Louis and Kansas City if if either city passes a minimum wage increase could that be on the agenda next year
0: well I think it 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 could and I you know I heard Senator Schaefer's comments and I think they're reflective of a of a deep frustration with the you know sort of the uh, approach of trying to to make the city and an island and not pers- pursue a comprehensive you know statewide minimum wage policy so um, I think those concerns and frustrations are not limited to Senator Schaefer
1: where would we get all of our money if the earnings tax was taken away and by we I mean city of st. Louis residents such as myself
0: yeah I' the answer to that question is one that the city would have to answer.
1: Yes, not pauper bluffians like correct. Herself. <laughs> I do want to play a clip from one of your predecessors, uh house former house speaker uh, Steve Tilley. He's actually a, a lobbyist right now as you know. He's kind of on the anti right to work side and he
2: represents many of the major labor and it kind in of state.
1: I think it kind it, it, he kind of spoke in this clip about kind of the the behind-the-scenes push on both sides that's going to happen to try to get people either to stay the course or to flip. Here's the clip right now.
2: And and I think there may be one, two, three, four maybe that that might potentially switch if they could be the 109th. But, you know, I visit with every Republican that voted no in the last two days of session. And I feel confident that they're going to stand by the the working families uh, that they were sent there to represent. So have
0: you
1: talked with any of your Republican colleagues and are they potentially wobbly on this issue one way or the other?
0: Well, I think what I'd say Jason is with you know without talking about the private conversation I have with my caucus Oh, on I the really issue, want to hear the private <laughs> conversation. Yeah, well, it, at some point we could we could share those with you but I I, understand. The, 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 I I think what what we're going through is a process we're asking people to to reevaluate, you know, kind of what their position on on the issue was. And um, I understand Steve's perspective and the position he's being paid to, to represent right now. Um, but look, we've seen a lot of issues that um, the difference between a, a vote count on a third read and an override uh, sometimes is, uh, is a big difference. We saw that um, near the end of session um, on, the, um, on the unemployment compensation uh, bill that I think was somewhere in the neighborhood of 88 votes on third read and and ultimately overridden with with 109. Um, So it is not an unprecedented thing to think we can go from the 92 votes that we sit at now to 109.
1: Could this issue of right to work if it doesn't end up getting overridden, does it just become a big issue during the gubernatorial race? Because the the, the feeling among many people is if a Republican wins the governorship, it doesn't really matter how many Republicans, you have it's probably going to be implemented. Is that is that another consideration?
0: Well, I think c- certainly right to work is going to continue to be a policy discussion if we're not able to override it. It's an issue that's not going away. In fact, the conversation is growing across the the, the country. Um, I it's you know I think most of the Republican, if not all the Republican candidates, announced at this point for governor, are supportive of of right to work, and I would anticipate that. With a Republican governor, it the legislature would put it on their desk and, and that person would sign it. So let's move on to some next session items,
1: because um, if all things go according to plan and there's not a shocking Democratic upset of you next year, which is probably not going to happen because you are in like a 90 percent Republican district, you're going to be speaker for probably the next three years or so. And
2: yeah, and one of the things I'm interested in is the fallout from. Just the uh, Supreme Court decisions of a few days ago, which basically bolstered the, simplifying it, bolstered the Affordable Care Act by saying the subsidies for states like Missouri, which doesn't have a state um, exchange, will stay in place and also in support of gay marriage. I'm interested in what impact that will have on state legislation, if any, uh, because there has been this fight over Medicaid expansion and over the exchanges. Uh, I'm interested in your take. So on So let's
1: start at uh, Affordable Care Act. What do you think the impact? Yeah, well,
0: okay. I, I think the impact of the, the the ultimate impact of the of the Burwell decision was was status quo. Things are going to continue to operate with the Affordable Care Act in Missouri as they were operating before. Uh, the court decision um, i'm obviously disappointed in the decision i you know i did not agree with the, the the analysis of the court but i'm not sitting there the nine justices that are there are um, so our our question is how, how does it change the the policy um, and ultimately i i don't think it it really impacts the decision on what to do with medicaid expansion keep in mind the the case in front of the supreme court was Pretty narrowly limited to the idea of what uh, what subsidies are available through the exchange and and what aren't. So, had this court gone the other way, I think it would have actually you know forced a different conversation than we've been having now, which is uh, that that conversation would been more in the vein of whether we need a state exchange or not. Um, so, I, I think the discussion on Medicaid uh, remains where where it has been, um, and you know we have a, I, I have the belief, and I think we have a caucus that has the belief that we shouldn't be talking about putting more people on a system that nobody thinks works very well today. Um, And our first and primary mission ought to be to try to get Medicaid um, in a place that's better than it is today. Every single year uh, that I've been in the House, we are seeing increases in Medicaid costs, and that's without any changes um, in eligibility. So I think people are rightly concerned about the long-term budget impacts of expansion, and that's going. Those concerns will continue until we're able to do something on the reform side.
2: Now, these changes, getting back to that really quickly, uh, initially this we're going back years yeah. was were, was a Republican idea, in some ways, of having more of a free market thing where uh, various insurance companies would vie for uh, business. Now, there was a decision made by Republicans in the General Assembly several years ago to oppose the state exchange. Okay, so we've got the federal exchange, but now I'm hearing from some people who say that, well, there may be a push for a state exchange because under the federal exchange, the state has no role in um, imposing certain restrictions, for example, dealing with abortion coverage and that sort of thing. Right. and that some people are rethinking about whether or not it had been a smart move by the GOP to oppose the state exchange. I'm just interested in your take on that, and if you think there might be a discussion on it, or is it people are going to say, look, we're just moving on and just leaving the federal exchange?
0: Well, I, th- I think that discussion continues on some level. But I think the more that states look at what they actually have the ability to control in setting up their own exchange, um, it's actually a fairly limited role that the state can have. A- and, frankly, the experience in states that have created exchanges, with a with a couple of exceptions, has not been been very good. Um, You know, one of the problems that you have with plans through the exchange is that the, the the coverage requirements are so expansive that it's hard to deliver affordable plans within that exchange, whether it's federal or state. You know, we went through a period of time uh, in Missouri where we only had one exchange plan yes. that included Barnes Hospital. Now, when you have the entity that's delivering 20% of the health care in Missouri that, that's not even a part of the network in all but one plan, uh, you, you've got a problem with the types of plans that are being delivered. I think if the state were in a position where we thought we could fix that and broaden the range of options, then we'd be much more open to to the idea of having a state exchange. But the reality of the ACA is it gives us very little control over setting what that policy is. And I think for that reason, the legislature probably remains in the same position that we've been in.
1: Now, switching gears to the other big Supreme Court decision, I was looking at the vote count in 2004 to put the amendment to the Missouri Constitution that barred gay marriage. And I think you were, what, 26, 27 years old and probably not even living here at the time. So you were not one of those legislators. But I noticed, first of all, every Republican voted for that. And actually, many prominent Democrats voted for it. Senator Paul LaVota voted for it. Treasurer Clint Zweifel voted for it. In fact, the only member of the legislature who's still in the legislature now Who voted against that is Senator Gina Walsh of Belfonte Neighbors. So, I mean, I'm going to be asking this question to Republicans and Democrats, but given how attitudes about gay marriage appear to have changed, do you think it was a mistake for Republicans back then to put that on the ballot and ban gay marriage back then?
0: I, I don't. I don't think so, uh, Jason. I think it was. You know, it, I, I still believe this is an issue that should have been left within the purview of state policymakers, and I think state policymakers in two thousand four were responding uh, to what the electorate and the public uh, wanted. And you know, if you look at real, what's what's so unfortunate about what the Supreme Court did is, I, I think there are a lot of the proponents of gay marriage that will find that that this decision, you know, may not have have delivered quite the victory that they thought it would have, because one of the things that occurs when you have this sort of edict from the Supreme Court, this is going to be the law of the land in all 50 states, um, all of that momentum that they had in changing public, the public's attitude about it, I think really gets damaged by that. And that was actually you know, part of the discussion in Justice Roberts' dissent in the case. Um, so I don't think it was a decision to put it on the ballot in 2004. I, I still believe it. The Supreme Court should have left that within the purview of state lawmakers. Uh, ultimately, they took a different different course.
1: So the, the big policy discussion that may or may not come next year is whether to basically extend anti-discrimination rights to sexual orientation and gender identity, which has been an issue, I think, for years and has yes. been pushed by... Many legislators in the House and the Senate. Do you think that there'll be any momentum to pass that next year?
0: I think there was momentum. There was some momentum to pass it this year, and it's an issue that enjoys support from from Democrats and some Republicans. Um, I think there is is a big question amongst some Republicans of of how you do it. And I think there's concern, sort of, with the uh, with the bakery, you know, example. Um, And I think there are a lot of people very concerned about creating a structure where you could have a a baker sued for exercising what their beliefs may be. Um, So I think any, you know, I'm not sure whether there's more momentum or less momentum given the Supreme Court's decision, but I don't anticipate it's gone away as an issue.
2: Were people, I mean, among the legislators and other people that you've talked to, were people surprised that the Supreme Court did this? I mean, is this Was this sort of out of the blue as far as some, uh, that in effect, Missouri's constitutional memo got tossed out in effect?
0: Yeah,
1: not in effect. I think in practice, too.
0: But yes, continue. Yeah, I I mean, I think it was a surprise to some and less of a shock to others. I think, you know, the the lawyers that we have in the caucus who, you know, sort of pay attention to very closely to what, you know, the opinion, the the people who think they can predict what Supreme Court decisions are going to do were not surprised. I think a lot of Court observers thought that this was a, a potential result, but I think the notion that the Supreme Court would essentially by by edict overturn you know the laws in in I guess still thirty nine states or somewhere in that neighborhood um, was shocking to some.
1: Yeah, going back to Mona for a second, which is I think is the shorthand for the Missouri yeah. Non Discrimination Act. You know, it, the tagline for proponents of that is that you know in Missouri you can be fired because you're gay, and I mean. In, in actuality, you could, if that law was in effect, you could still fire somebody because they're gay, but the consequence of that would be that they could go to court and sue the crap out of you, basically, just as if you fired me because I'm Jewish or a man or whatever. We have a clip now from Representative Stephen Weber where I asked him whether the lit- litigiousness of that was a concern or whether it was other things. Is it a fear that it's about you know, litigation and causing a litigious environment or something like that? I would say
0: there are two things. One is, one is that, and the second is the, the quote, moral objections uh, to homosexuality. There are some people that genuinely have the, the concern about additional litigation, mm-hmm. and I understand that, and I tried my best to address that. There are other people that I think are just want to be able to discriminate and are using that as a shield.
1: First of all, I want to apologize to our listeners for using slight profanity right there. But second of all, I want you to kind of respond to Representative Weber. And I'm wondering if that analysis is apt or off base.
0: Well, I think I would agree with, with uh, Representative Weber on, on his first contention and probably disagree on the second. Um, there, there are clearly people that are concerned about um, the policy because of the litigious nature um, and, and the potential for business to be exposed to liability. Um, if you look at at one of the things that our caucus works on pretty consistently, whether it's in this space or it's in others, um, it's to try to reduce a, and to make the litigation environment more favorable towards business, not less. So clearly, that that is one of the concerns. Um, but the opposition to Mona is not being driven by people who want to be able to discriminate. The majority of the opposition that you see is is a result of concern that by having an anti-discrimination policy, in effect, you're essentially going to be forcing someone um, to violate their own beliefs. Um, And that's a deep concern for a lot of members uh, of my caucus. And and look, you've seen examples of this play out in other places. Uh, That being said, um, I think there is and remains the opportunity to have a discussion about what the right policy um, is in Missouri. Um, And I do not think that the Supreme Court's decision um, changes in any way the trajectory of that issue. It will continue to come back um, in the legislature.
1: Now, the other thing I wanted to talk with you about looking forward was uh, the response to Ferguson. And the legislature passed the municipal courts bill, which I think was a pretty sizable and sweeping change to that specter of the justice system. And it will probably have a major impact on St. Louis County governance. We're recording this on a Wednesday. As of now, I don't think the governor has signed it into law. I would guess he probably will because it was voted by a pretty big margin. But be that as it may, there were a lot of other things that were introduced and that have actually been passed in other states. For example, Texas passed a body camera law. I believe Maryland and Illinois both passed databases of police shootings. There's a whole other array of Ferguson-related bills that were introduced in Missouri that didn't pass that passed in other states. So my question is, maybe next year, is it possible the legislature deals with some of those unfinished issues that were maybe started this year, but not finished?
0: Yeah, well, the legislature always comes back to unfinished issues. And we seem to have some of these issues that recirculate year in and year out. But I do think in this space, Jason, there's the opportunity for some of them to, to come back. I think if you look at the legislature's record on dealing with the quote unquote, Ferguson related bills, I think it was actually pretty good this session. Um, a policy as as sweeping and impactful as municipal court re- reform um, is something that doesn't typically happen on the time frame that that issue happened on. And credit to Eric Schmidt and to Paul Kurtman and to Robert Cornejo and the others who worked really hard to get that across the finish line. Um, I do think it's very curious as to why the governor hasn't signed it. Um, it's a bipartisan bill with with overwhelming majorities and the opportunity to have a huge impact on one of the 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 large on the largest region of the state um so i i am very hopeful that he'll sign it but optimistic that we can override him if he doesn't
2: now is there any concern at all about what there's one provision that uh, okay restricts the amount of income that a city can collect from traffic related fines and stuff but the percentage is different for rural missouri than for st louis county is there concern at all about whether or not that could create a legal fight that might end up um hurting the whole measure.
0: I I anticipate there'll be a legal fight over municipal court reform, no matter how we structured it. Um, And I think if the Missouri Municipal League uh, filed lawsuits against the old Max Creek law that just made their way to the Supreme Court, Um, in the past uh, few months. So I anticipate those legal challenges will be there, but I think if you look at the legislature's justification for why we created a different percentage, there's ample justification that will survive constitutional scrutiny. Um, The the 90-plus municipalities in St. Louis County, the much higher rates of traffic warrants um, that are there, the much higher percentages um, overall uh, of municipal revenue that comes from traffic fines, I think justify the legislature's decision to put a lower cap in St. Louis County than in other parts of the state.
1: Do you think one of the impacts of that bill, if it goes into effect and if it survives
0: legislation, is
1: the amount of municipalities may shrink from 90 to a smaller
0: number? I think the municipalities that were only able to survive and exist because of their reliance on traffic fines will have a very difficult time justifying their existence and having a, enough of a tax base to to support the operation, um, but you know ultimately the the, the goal and of, of the legislation wasn't to to force some of those you know cities um, out of business, but it was to end this practice of funding the basic operations of of government through traffic fines, which I think is fundamentally the wrong thing to do. So uh, during the session, and I'm sure you heard this
1: this argument from some members of the Black Caucus, they were saying that many of the bills that they had introduced. not getting much traction and that they eventually some of them didn't get any traction because you know they didn't end up passing for various reasons i want to play a clip from representative michael butler who i was interviewing for a story for for npr that you were also on by the way that i asked him why he thought that some of these bills didn't end up getting
2: a lot of traction folks bring up race and bring up some glaring issues when it comes to just cultural differences even if you use the word cultural differences Republicans have been known to say, we want to keep that out of it. We want to keep that out of it. it it's, it's not just, just just legislators. Folks in Missouri are afraid to have the race conversation. Even in the St. Louis area, we're afraid to talk about race. And it won't go away by just not doing any, by doing nothing. It won't go away by not talking about it.
1: It was a pretty stinging criticism, not only of Republicans, but I think of politicians in general. Obviously, St. Louis area is almost completely controlled by Democrats. And his argument, as you just heard, is that sometimes politicians have difficulties dealing with African-American-related or race-related issues. I'd like you to respond to that.
0: Well, I think that as a society and as a culture as a whole, we've had difficulty dealing with race issues and talking about race issues. And frankly, they're, they're hard conversations to have. But I think the implication um, that uh, the legislature didn't pass a certain subset of bills because of race or because of some sort of underlying racism is flatly wrong Um, and despite the fact that I like Representative Butler very much we have a good relationship I think his characterizations way off base. Keep in mind every single bill that was filed related to Ferguson was referred to committee Um, and in fact at one point the chairman of the Black Caucus was having a press conference talking about why we weren't moving Ferguson related issues at the same time a committee was hearing municipal court reform bill Um, so I look I understand um, the concern and and the desire to move forward on some of those issues and there are some which I think we can find common ground on Uh, figuring out how we're going to make or not make publicly available body camera footage was an issue that got very close to getting over the finish line Mm -hmm. updating Missouri's use of force statute was uh, a bill that was passed by both bodies albeit in slightly different form unfortunately dies in the Senate because of the things going on in there during the last week, so I think there's the opportunity to to move forward. But I think the productive way to move forward with them is not by criticizing the the motives or the intent of of people who disagree with you on a particular policy choice.
1: Would you possibly look to some of the other states that ended up passing things on body cameras or databases? Because not only did I mention you know Maryland. Um, Illinois, also Texas, but also Colorado passed a whole host of things, and they have actually have a divided legislature. The Republicans control the Senate, the governor's mansion and the House are controlled by Democrats. Could you maybe look to some of those states for guidance?
0: Yeah, I think there's always the opportunity for us in the legislature to look at the good examples uh, from other states and and this issue will be no different. But I think we need to be careful when when looking at uh, quote unquote, a Ferguson related you know set of issues and having the entire conversation be about law enforcement. The reality is there are things we can do in the law enforcement space that, that makes sense to do, no question about it. But if if we allow that to dominate the conversation, we're missing the broader economic and educational issues that exist, not just in Ferguson, but in places across the state. Um, and it's my hope that the legislature can spend more time trying to figure out how we create better educational opportunities in an area like Ferguson, how we create better economic opportunities, and how we give people that sense that they can have something better than they have now, where they aspire to something in an area like Ferguson. Those are the broader policy challenges that the legislature really needs to focus on.
2: This, this has to do with ethics uh, changes. Uh, the last major ethics bill actually was passed away, uh, while Steve Tilley was speaker and it got tossed out by the
0: so-called greatest (laughs) ethics bill in the universe right
2: (laughs) yeah and it got tossed out on technical grounds by the supreme court well and everyone's talked about having something since then i mean with or without campaign donation limits i mean there's all different things about lobbyists or restrictions i'm just interested in a how high Uh, is this? Is the issue on your pecking order or do you see it as something that maybe is not really worth all the time?
0: It's a top priority for me. It's a top priority, I think, for uh, and and I'm going to work to make sure it's a top priority for our caucus. Um, I think we need to move forward um, on the issue and improve the environment. Now, does that mean we're going to get to something that includes every single subject matter um, relating to ethics? Probably not. We've seen how that approach plays out. And both in the example you mentioned of the bill that gets thrown out in court, but also last year. Um, My belief is that in in this space particularly, we need to work towards passing some single subject bills. So we don't allow the issue to get caught up in the same thing that happens every year, which is the bill gets so big that it dies under its own weight. So it will be a top priority.
2: Now, is there a particular part that you're going to be pushing?
0: Well, I think if you look at what at the version of Senate Bill 12, which was Senator Richard's bill from last session, uh, the, the House version of that bill, um, we'll look to move some things very, very close to what was contained in that bill. But I think for, for me, obviously, the conversation about contribution limits is one that takes the issue to a different level in terms of controversy. But everything else. um, Like lobbyists? Lobbyist gifts need to be on the table as a part of the conversation. Uh, Disclosure um, of of lobbyist gifts um, needs to be on the table. Ending the revolving door uh, practice, or at least creating a waiting period, needs to be on the table.
1: What about 501c3s? Because I remember talking with you in 2012 and Jay Barnes about how you wanted to do something on that. And I don't think you ever did anything on
0: that. Yeah, well, uh, one of the things that we talked about when, when we talked about that yeah. issue several years ago was the difficulty of figuring out a way to do that with sort of capturing the the activity that was there that was meant to, to hide the activity and, the, and not limit the ability to use that as a tool to do very legitimate things. So um, we've got members that, that are continuing to work on that problem, and I'm sure... Um, yeah, I'm sure it will continue to come up, but it's a very vexing problem, and I don't think, um, given where we are now, probably at the top of the priority list.
2: Yeah, because there there been a number of new groups that are 501c4s on both sides, right? And they do not have to report their their donors. And I, I met,
1: yeah. When I said 501c3s, I meant 501c4s. Yes. We're not talking about getting rid of charities or anything like right. that. Yeah, but, no, but, it cannot, yeah, but, yeah but
2: the 501. So, and there appears to be there may be an explosion of them leading into the 2016 election.
0: Well, you've seen it on the federal level, and um, you know with the way that the Supreme Court has interpreted the Constitution, those groups have a right uh, to spend money and to exercise independent expenditures in races. And so um, what we're going to focus on this session are are how we can improve the activities that relate directly to the General Assembly. Um, And those are the things that that I think uh, were part of Senate Bill 12 last year, and those are the things we'll come back to.
2: Stadium, anything new on the stadium front that you might be pushing or blocking?
0: Well, obviously, the legislature is not in session right now, and so um, the the, uh, the stadium fight is taken its way into the judicial branch and not the legislative branch right now. So we will see what uh, what the outcome of those court cases is. We'll see uh, whether the governor, in fact, moves forward with the financing plan. Um, but I think it's important for the governor to uh, keep the legislature apprised of, of what he plans to do, because at the end of the day... Um, this is an issue that impacts every single Missourian. Governor's talking about obligating the state to an additional maybe $300 million worth of, of public spending at a time when we've got growing infrastructure problems across the state. Um, so I'm um, very concerned about the issue. I, I believe St. Louis, as I said on our last show, I believe St. Louis is and should be an NFL caliber city. Um, I believe it is that caliber of a city and I don't believe it ought to have an NFL team. Um, but whether the state taxpayers should pay to build a new stadium when we haven't even finished paying off the old one, I think is a different conversation.
1: We've had a lot of people on this show, Republican and Democrats, who have basically heaped praise on you, say that you're a fair person, say that you're you know did a good job as majority leader, saying that you're walking on water, so to speak. But you know, as I'm sure you know, being Speaker is a very intense job. You often get into personality conflicts. Issues come out of nowhere, and you know, as I've talked with former Speaker Rod Jetton before, that aforementioned flattery and praise can actually be harmful occasionally as well. So given all of that, how are you kind of looking into this next few years as Speaker, and how do you think you can avoid some of the pitfalls that, you know, bedeviled some of your per- your predecessors?
0: Well, I think it's to stay grounded and to try to remember the reasons why you decided to get into public office uh, in the first place. And, you know, the fortunate thing for me and, and is, you know, I have a my, my wife isn't often a very good reminder that you're not nearly as good as people are telling you are. Uh, sometimes that's helpful, sometimes not so much, but you know, the, those kinds of things. And, and, and to remind yourself on, on, uh, you know, on a regular basis that you know, we all get the chance in a term-limited environment to do this for but a little while and at some point um, I'll be moving on to something else and um, all of these people that are my friends today some of them I'm sure will continue to be my friends but a lot of them won't care nearly <laughs> as much about what I think um, a few years from now well, so yeah that depends
1: I mean depending on what you end up doing next you could either run for statewide or federal office, or if that's unsuccessful, there's always an open Senate seat, so they may care about your opinion there. So
0: they they, they, they might, but I think for the time, for the time being, I, I will remind myself that um, I, I do have a lot more friends than I had a month ago. <laughs> <laughs>
2: That's great. I think it's that's a good to way on. to
1: end the show. Thank you so much for for dealing with this high-pressured issue explosion podcast. We appreciate it, as always. I appreciate you guys having me. And uh, to close us out, you can find all of our stories at stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at jrosenbaum. You can follow Joe on Twitter at, at
2: jmanis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And
1: you can follow the speaker on Twitter at, at Rep. t Richardson. Thank you very much. Until next week, so long.